All right, so Sudarshan Sridharan is this young kid, he's 20 years old, who recently launched a startup all about detecting and predicting wildfires. But he's a really interesting dude, and he's done a lot of projects since he was like 11 years old. Really interesting story, interesting experiences, and he's got some pretty unique ideas. He's one of the kids in this Gen Z mafia group that I've talked about previously on this podcast. You might remember Emma from a previous podcast, also of the Gen Z mafia. So yeah, I'm just really bullish on these kids. Sudarshan turned $500 that his parents gave him when he was like 11 years old into hundreds of thousands of dollars, he tells me, from uh, trading stocks. And he launched a bunch of businesses, and then he tells the whole story from there all the way up to launching Gen Z Mafia and his current project, where now he's wheeling and dealing with tons of powerful people, and he's just got a lot of ambition and energy, and it was fun to talk to. You're going to learn how to launch a company valued at millions of dollars when you're only 20 years old. We're going to talk about how the desires of venture capitalists for new deals are very similar to the desires of college students looking for new parties. We're going to learn about ways that maybe young people can think that will help them make themselves more available to opportunities and to achieve bigger and better things at hopefully earlier and earlier ages. And we're also going to learn a little bit about how if you struggle in the first part of your life with being awkward and socially ostracized, how you can switch from that to being more charismatic and navigating social networks and succeeding and like finding teammates and building teams and creating new projects with people. We are also going to talk about how to bootstrap communities, specifically how to think about growing a community from scratch on the internet and yeah, a bunch of other things, but I think that's enough for an introduction. Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co, that's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask. Please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So thanks. And now, on to the show. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Justin. How are you doing? Absolutely. I'm very happy to have you. I'm doing very well today. I am uh, enjoying this series of podcasts that is not live. Uh, we were just talking before we started recording that sometimes the the live chat on YouTube can be quite a cesspool and I'm just sick of it. Don't really feel like dealing with it. And it's just more relaxing and chill to uh, record audio only. So nice to have you for about an hour or so. How would you explain what you're all about? Yeah. So that was a great intro. Fion, our goal at Fion is to stop fires before they start. Uh ambitious goal but right now no one's really been working on tackling that and our team has a huge knowledge mode they're researchers at Rigetti and Lockheed Martin and we basically do four things we detect locations at risk for fires we use satellite imagery to detect fires faster than anybody else within hours rather than days we use once we detect a fire we use our machine learning model to predict where the fire is going to spread to and finally, we do destruction estimation, which is 
a prediction of how much financial damage is going to be caused by smoke damage, fire damage, people losing their houses, stuff like that. And yeah, by on starting on the software side, eventually we hope to obviously, you know, do firefighting drones and we're growing the team right now. So if anybody listening is a data scientist, a machine learning engineer, or has worked in enterprise or government sales, this is my quick plug that we would love to talk with you. You can reach me suds at fion.tech, S-U-D-S at F-I-O-N.T-E-C-H. And my Twitter is at I-T-Z, S-U-D-S, it's suds. So yeah, that's just my quick plug for my company. Other than that, I'm 20 years old. I recently moved from Clemson, South Carolina to San Francisco last month in September. And yeah, yeah, I've been writing and building stuff since I was 11 years old. Yeah, awesome. And I want to get a little bit into your history because there's some interesting stuff that you've done, which is pretty impressive. Like you made a lot of money trading stocks when you were only 11 years old, and you were also pretty early in esports and things like that. So uh, quite an interesting history for for a man as young as yourself. So I want to talk a little bit about that, but it probably would make sense to start with the present because you're working on this startup that you just introduced. And by the way, for people listening, I'll put all of the information he just mentioned in the show notes. So people want to follow up with any of that. Tell me a little bit about the value proposition of Fion. Like tell, tell me a little bit more about the long-term like business model or the long-term uh, strategy that, that you see for Fion. Where in an ideal world, mm-hmm. what does this grow to in two years, three years, five years? Yeah. So <laughs> in an ideal world, there's a lot of advancements that need to be made in fire alone in the fire space. As far as detecting fires, right now, the way the industry does it is through fire sentry towers, where they have literal human beings um, standing stationed in sentry towers for weeks on end. And their whole job is to just look for fires in the forests and then notify authorities when that happens. We obviously software is eating the world. Software can eat this as well. So first thing that needs to happen is once we build our current spread of technology, which is the four things I outlined earlier, we obviously want to start investing heavily into R&D. So that means things like the, there are low Earth orbit satellites that take pictures every 10 minutes of the entire world rather than 12 hours. And the problem with that is those picture quality is really bad. So it's hard to figure out where a fire is like every 10 minutes. So we want to build machine learning models that can effectively look through those machine learn look through those low earth orbit satellites and figure out where a fire is if we can get that down to 10 minutes detection time once a fire starts instead of three days instead of 12 hours like we currently have that will be game changing so it's a lot of stuff like really small incremental just heads down heavy r&d that we want to invest in in the next couple years um so we're talking about detection we're talking about making drones that set controlled burn fires, right? Like things like that, where it's, okay, where do we have humans operating and how can we automate that? How can we put technology to use in order to make it safer, make it more efficient and make things faster for people? So that'll be the next two to three years. After that, we want to look into, obviously keep pushing the boundaries on fires, but we also think our model would be very effective to make weather forecasting as a whole a lot more a lot more accurate. So things like storms and hurricanes, floods, all that stuff, we want to be able to take over and make a lot more accurate. So as a result, we want to just take over the entire 
first response, natural disaster space. As a whole. Okay, cool. I totally get that. Makes sense. If you can get the technology working for fires, then you can export it to mm-hmm. other types of natural uh, situations. So yeah, I'm not a coder or anything like that. I, I stand on the shoulder of my of giants. In this case, that's my team, right? Like we've got these kick-ass researchers from NC State, our CTO formerly at Google, Oracle, Visa, Deloitte. And so we've got like this insane team that really knows what they're doing. And I'm just, I'm right. just really the glue that holds that together. Cool, cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And maybe you could tell us a little bit quickly about what is the current, what are your current numbers in, in the sense of like how many people are on the team right now and how much have you raised funding yet? Or what's just give us a sense of the actual numbers of this machinery at the moment. Yeah. So we are actually, we're not pre-revenue anymore, but yeah, our team is five people. It's me, two researchers, my CTO, and then one other engineer right now. We did a early bird sale for a consumer tool last week, which basically allows people to type in their address and they can look at all the fires that are near them. And then they can see if a fire is predicted to come near their house. And if a fire is predicted to come near their house, they'll get a notification through via email with information on where the fire is located, the probability of where it's going to. Like, okay, interesting. And how much is that? Yeah, so that's $40 a year. We did a early bird special just to see if there was any interest. Pre-product at $5 for lifetime access last Thursday morning, we launched at midnight and 50 people bought that off of my one tweet. So it's, and I talked to a lot of these customers, try to understand, Hey, why'd you guys buy this? What was the impetus for this? All that. And a lot of people gave us a lot of great reasons why one guy, for example, his 74 year old mom, she kept having to be woken up at 3am by the neighbors. And he was worried that one day the neighbors wouldn't be able to get to her and what happens when a fire gets there, right? Right. So that was going to be my next question, actually. Who are you primarily trying to sell to? I was assuming you were going to say businesses or yeah, so our goal. Yes. So here's the thing. We are end of the day, a enterprise and government focused company we want to sell to. But for me, I always believe that a good business is it's not just having cutting edge technology, right? It's about substantiating it with revenue, showing that, hey, People want this. I don't, I, I think that end of the day in business, revenue is one of those, making money is the goal of a business. But I think that there are ways to be ethical about it. There are ways to go about it that are going to help people. So we want to be at the intersection of we're paying back our investors, making sure that we're holding up our end of actually running a business by making money, but we're also providing life saving, really valuable information to people. And so I think something like Fion's first consumer facing tool, this, you know, fire evacuation notice warning is a really good, like, you know, it's, it's not like the be all end all by any means, but when you get 20 minutes to evacuate in Napa, if we can catch 50% of the fires that are coming your way, and we can give you a little bit more heads up, you can pack and have a bit of bit more information to make more informed decisions. Right on. Yeah. Know the app, the uh, dark sky app. Yeah. Yeah. The weather app. Yeah. Um, I use that regularly. Uh, That's actually my go-to weather app. And uh, for people listening who don't know, it's basically hyper local weather uh, stats and forecasting. And I believe, do you know much about what's under the hood of their app? Um, I do not. My general assumption is that they probably use the same things as the industry standard, except they, which is going to be your satellite data and basic meteorological tools. But then they've also added an extra layer of like machine learning to it to make it a little bit more 
accurate. Is my I opinion. think that's right. I think also they have a layer of crowdsourced information input also, I believe. Ooh, okay. And I'm not sure if it could be done. Actually, I forget. It could be done through sensors in the phone, maybe, or it's done manually. Like I know on the app, they have an option to, you can just tap, is it sunny? Is it raining where you are? And I believe they have some kind of like ensemble model that is combining the the satellite stuff with the local data that's either coming from the phone automatically or coming from uh, user submitted input. So I don't know too much about it at all, but it definitely, I take it as a kind of example of what you're doing or like a kind of precedent for what you're doing because it's the best weather app I've ever used. And I think uh, it just proves that you can make sophisticated models of one kind or another and provide this kind of like hyper local weather related information. And uh, yeah, it can work and it's like super cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we're successful, we want to basically be like, we want to like basically make sure that there are never fires again. So that would come through us either detecting fires super early or going one step further and detecting the locations that are primed for fire. That sounds hard, but it's really easy because there's vegetation indices, there's fuel sources, there's a lot of the air quality even, there's a lot of different data sources you can draw from to try to predict if a fire is going to happen in a certain year. That's really one of those um, things where crowdsourcing for the fire detection is how the government operates right now. People on your team, it sounds like you did not raise money yet. Sorry, I should have answered this question earlier. We haven't opened our financing round yet, but a well-known founder reached out and I respect this guy a lot. I've known him for years at this point. And he was like, hey, a lot of my friends are talking about Fion. We, I, I talked to one of his friends about our tech. And so he was like, sound like you guys you know, know what you're doing. I want to cut a check. So we got one check at a absurdly high valuation. But yeah, we aren't actively raising money. And that valuation that's not public? Yeah. Tell us. Tell us. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, it was $8 million. Right yeah. on. And so when we raised, we'll probably, before we were going to raise after the product was completely developed and we were going to do it at a higher or the lower end, but like a little bit higher valuation. But now we've decided that the money we raised can buoy us for however long we need. So we're going to focus on developing the best consumer experience and getting that product out as fast as possible so we can start generating some revenue. And once right on. we do that, I think... Um, ever have to open the round, the checks are just going to start coming in like they've already started. So that's my goal, right? It's to get to revenue, show that we have some market validation that people actually want to use us and then generate some press or some hype. So that way I can hustle my first sale with the fire department or a insurance company or the you know US Department of the Interior. And once that happens, then we can try to hustle sale number two, number three, and then we can go hire a salesperson from a pound here or an Andrel or a SpaceX. That's right on. So that's totally could say it. Yeah, cool. Okay. So I, I can guess that a lot of people listening to my podcast, a lot of people in my audience are wondering right about now, like how does a young 20 year old kid do this coming from a university in South Carolina, Clemson? How do you get the networks? How do you build the relationships? How do you find the people that are willing to even get this project off the ground? Because a lot of people in my audience, it's not the typical kind of healed 
Silicon Valley business people. Like the people in my audience are more weirdos, uh, autodidacts, really smart, interesting, ambitious people often, but very far off normal beaten paths often. A lot of the people, and I know a lot of people in my audience are younger. So there's definitely some people uh, more like your age or possibly even younger listening to this. And I think a lot of them are probably wondering like, how does someone 20 years old get this kind of project together and get it off the ground? So I wonder if you could speak to that at all. There's a lot of stuff to that question to unpack. Um, yeah, take any piece of it you want. We, yeah, let's start with the conversation we had earlier, right? Like before the podcast started, where we talked about how when you're younger, you tend to co- be coined a prodigy if you're doing something exceptionally well or even at an average level, but it's just not average for people your age, right? Like you pick things up faster. I think one of those things is I grew up ostracized my whole life. Didn't have any friends till I was 17. It was pretty rough. So for me, sorry. Why didn't you have friends? Why were you ostracized? Yeah, I was just always like, I'm 6'6". So I was just always like taller. I was louder. I was always just, I didn't grow up with my parents, obviously tried. I just didn't really pick up on social cues. I didn't understand how people worked, how social relationships work, any of that stuff. And so I always grew up in a very like, uh, Life could have been a lot easier for me. And so I basically just had to figure out what do I want to do? And so for me, not even because I wanted to, but because I didn't have anything else to do, I just started reading a lot about and then writing a lot. Like I used to always write stories. My favorite story was Space School. I wrote like literally have written entire novels about what would happen if you had school in space. I I don't know. Like I was like 10 years old. But then like I started reading there was this one book. I think it was a big short, actually. I think if it came out in 2007 or 2009, something like that. No, yeah, 2009. The big short was like really pivotal for me because that was the first like finance book or anything I'd read. I didn't understand most of it, but I was like, this is it. This is where I want to go. I, I want to be... There's the guy that always gets a credit is um Paul uh, something. But there's another guy that actually gave him the trade, right? Like he comes from nothing. And then he made $400 million off that one trade, which in the big short, for those of you that don't know, is basically just uh, in 2008, there was one guy, one hedge fund that made $20 billion in 2008. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was falling by betting against the housing market. And um, the guy who told the hedge fund to make that trade, his name was Palo Pellegrini. He only made $400 million off that, but still, he came from nothing. He came from zero. He was an immigrant. So that guy always inspired me because we had like similar stories at that time. Mm. Um, And then I got older, I started reading a lot, blogging a lot more about finance, about investing. The article I'm most proud of, I've written a lot of stuff that was really stupid, but I also wrote about how Amazon will be the first trillion dollar company when I was 15 years old. Hmm. So that was like, like, it's just, I knew nothing, right? There's no way a 10 year old, 12 year old, 13, 15 year old kid should reasonably be able to talk about stocks or write about stocks or anything like that. But so that's why I always say it's just instinctive. Right. Like I just had that natural like ability. And yeah, like nowadays I call it like pattern matching. I think like that's really one of my superpowers is the ability to like synthesize information really well. Um, You just I just had to know what to look for. So as soon as I understood, okay, I talk too much. I talk too loud. I people don't like this about me. Like I lack social just awareness. Then I started like really just honing in on that stuff when I was like 16, 17-ish. And by the time I got to college, I was I immediately flipped the switch from being this like kid that was just running businesses and trading stocks to 
yo, I'm a party promoter, right? Like I literally just showed up to school, carried around a bag of king size Skittles around my dorm. And I was just, anybody who was like, yo, can I get some Skittles? I'd be like, give me your Snapchat. And so naturally that first day I got like 200 people who added me. And then one guy was like, hey, come to this party. I went to that party. I met all the people who were in frats and through other parties. And then I started posting those parties on my Snapchat. So within the first week of school, I had 2000 people who added me like freshmen who were looking for parties. And so like very quickly, I, I knew, okay, if I throw parties or I'm like the pipeline, like how VCs want deal flow, kids want party flow. So if I just feed them like all these parties, people are going to like me. And so that was like, before I even had any real understanding of how to move socially, that was like, I figured out how to social engineer that like party, like that social hack, right? And then from there, I realized, okay, I've got this following. I should probably be using it. So I started like just posting, like basically like my Snapchat became my vlog, right? A vlog of my life. And I'd always take like, I, I learned very quickly how to push content. And that might seem like not that important, but I think community building is a lot of finding people of a general demographic and then adding value to them. And so in this case, it was people, college kids, all college kids want to party. So let's give them the parties. And then also I was on student government and I was trying to like get really good grades and I was working on companies and all that. So I was like giving people like a, yeah, you can do both type thing. And I started building like group chats and a community around me, I would say. And um, very quickly, just because I, I always grew up like Silicon Valley lives off the theory of reciprocity, which is add X amount of value to people to get Y amount back. And so for me, like I've just taken the laissez-faire approach of let's just help everybody who come I come across. I always ask people, it's a meme at this point, but I'm always like, how can I help? And people always have something they want help with. Right. And so I got really good at connecting two groups of two mutually beneficial parties with each other. And then I ask every, or I used to ask everybody, tell me your story. Like when I was like 16, 17 years old, I logged like a hundred thousand miles, like for work, like just flying. And so I was, everybody I met, I was like, tell me your story. And so I always got all the secondhand information. And before being this like socially, like just awkward kid with zero friends, I was like always the one making the mistakes and getting burnt. But mm -hmm. uh, then once I got to college, I realized, wait, like I have this wealth of knowledge from these much older people that I picked up traveling. Like I can try to give some of this knowledge to other people. And so once again, it's that instinct that it's that instinct that I like, uh, just felt like, okay, I need to, what do people want? I just bet that they want at parties. And I was like, what else do they want? They want a friend, right? Like they want someone they can get advice from, whatever that is. And later on, I realized you can either be the world's friend or the world's leader. You can't have, you can't be, want to be a leader, but have the benefits of being a friend, right? They're two different things. And so for me, like I had to figure out how do I want to be perceived? How do I want to move? And so that was my entire first freshman year of college, right? Like at the same time, because I, I did, never made it known that I'd run businesses or had this press or anything like that. But I, and I had no idea. But like when you're just like naturally entrepreneurial and it's just been a part of you for that long, it just comes out. Like I was monetizing parties. I was promoting. I was anytime people needed help with something, I just hop in and be like, oh, yeah, if you want to you know, do this, you should try this. If you want to do that, you should try this. And okay. so it came up to me and was like, hey. I think you need to apply to the school's pitch competition. I was like, wait, Clemson has a pitch competition? Oh my God, like, yes. And so I had a week, I had one week to apply. And so I was like, guys, what should I do? I just posted on my Snapchat. Someone was like, put Twitch in virtual reality. I was like, great. 
So then I don't know how to build VR. Turns out Clemson is one of five schools in the country with a fully established VR lab. And so my friend told me this. And so I walked into the VR lab and I'm like, this is October of my freshman year, like two months after I got in college. <laughs> Walking at like 11 a.m. just skipped one of my classes because, you know, who needs school? And so I like walked in. I'm like, hey, guys, I, I like I'm a business major. I've run companies in the past. Is anybody interested in making some money with and naturally, like 20 pairs of eyes are on me and I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I've got to pitch. And so like, that was like my first time like pitching anything to people. So yeah, like I, I pitched second reality, the vision, which was to basically become a second reality anytime people wanted to meet, right? Like it, not just stop at esports, but business conferences, concerts, TV shows, anything like that. Any event where people would gather, they could do it on second reality. And okay. so, and so then I found a team of five guys to build it. And I was like, whoa. And within three days, we had the first project built. And that was my first time I PM'd it. Um, And so we went to the pitch competition. I pitched, long story short, I get no money. Then this one investor comes up to me. He's hey, you didn't get money because nobody really understood anything about VR or esports, the market opportunity. I'm like, oh my God. But he was like, yeah, I'm going to give you a check if you can wow me in a month, the day after Thanksgiving or the weekend after Thanksgiving is the general Clemson University of South Carolina rivalry game. He was like, pitch me that Friday before the game. So a month later I go pitch him. He's like, how much do you want? I was like, Oh, $30,000 or $25,000. And he was like, okay, cool. Done. I'm like, great. 30 grand. Let's do it. And he was like, did you just bump up the valuation? I'm like, yes, I did. He was like, all right, cool. 30 grand. So I raised $30,000 and that's all I needed. I got to work and we got nothing built for 18 months. <laughs> um, and then March of this year, 2020, I shut the company down because COVID hit. But before that, I'd also raised an extra 10 grand from the guy who made Xbox Live for Microsoft. And I really thought we were going to like really succeed. But then we still had no way of developing the VR tech because my entire team just graduated and left. And I was also like really new to the whole business thing. So for a long time, I was like, shit, I'm a failure. I need to focus on school. Like there was one other time in my life where I'd been like that. And I was like, I need to focus on school. I need to try to get a job. Let's get 60 grand a year. Let's be hype. Let's go be normal. Um, but that was when I was 16. And the day after I like decided I was going to do that, I got a call from the chapter president of 500 startups at the time in for Charlotte, North Carolina. And he was like, Hey, we're starting a VC fund. Do you want to be an EIR? And so that's how I learned about when I was 16 years old, March, 2017, I learned about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that basically gave me a new lease on life like that. I was going through this really rough spot in October of last year where I was like, what have I done? Like, I don't have any grades, like they're garbage. And I don't have um, like a successful company. There are kids raising $20 million at 19 years old. And here I am at 19 years old. Nothing's happened. And so then I realized, all right, like if we're going to be normal, let's at least be better than everybody else that's normal. And I built like Eventbrite with no transaction fees with my friend Carson, who also helped start Gen Z Mafia. And that thing took off like a rocket ship because I built it just for me so I could pocket more money and list parties easier. And by this point, I was making like 300 bucks a party three times a week, right? Five times a week. Like Mm -hmm. frats were paying me, independents were paying me. Just anybody who was throwing a party was paying me anywhere from 300, 500 bucks. And so I was like, I need a better way to keep track of all this stuff. And so I built this app. Within three months, it had 100,000 
people using it. It's called partytalk.co. Hmm. Um, and so as a result, I was like, whoa, I know how to PM products. This is the you know like second thing I've PM'd. It's turned out great. Maybe I should focus more on software and like easier things to build than VR. And yeah. so like, in 2020, like I was trying to convince my investors we should pivot. It just wasn't working out. So I took the last, you know, we were down to nine grand in the bank. I decided to, and I'm on city government in Clemson. So I asked the city to shut down early and they did the right things. But basically people felt Clemson was a ghost town. And I felt like part of that was my fault. And because I lobbied the city to shut down like a week or two before the governor did, and which is a big deal in the South, in the South as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I basically had to figure out how do I keep money flowing into these restaurants that are in the city that are totally dependent only on the college, like college town, the people coming to the school. So I noticed that everybody was selling gift cards online for their favorite restaurants. So I tried to make a site that aggregated all the gift cards that people sold online, like from our local community. So I could send that out in a news blast to the entire Clemson alumni because I was on student government. Um, what happened was I noticed nobody was selling gift cards online because they just didn't have that tech infrastructure. There's still some places in Clemson that are cash only. So me being totally not technical at all, I tried calling my friends. Everybody was busy with their startups or just spring break or just whatever it was. And so I spent three days, just felt like I was totally just caffeinated to the max. And I built a no code solution, right? Like a gift card payment processor. Um, using Squarespace, Stripe, Zapier, and Airtable. And that ended up, I had to hack, growth hack it a little bit, but that was just like a problem. Once again, I had to solve a problem for my needs. Like in this case, party talk was I had to solve a problem so I could make more money faster. And for Save Maps, which is a nonprofit, I was sick and tired of quote unquote running a company that was essentially just a complete failure. And I wanted to just help. And so in this case, like I built this thing um, it ended up growing to 1300 businesses within five weeks. We got loads and loads of press like Inc, Adweek, ABC, all the stuff. And the city pushed it. The state of South Carolina pushed it. It blew up all over nationwide. We had an acquisition offer. We partnered with Performance Food Group, which did $20 billion in revenue last year. So like we were doing great. The SEC came after us and I woke up one day to a you know, great email from them about how we were breaking every money transfer law in the book. And we could get charged with money laundering if we don't shut down. So we shut down operations. And that was like, I started this on March 17th. I shut it down on May 17th. And then I went home to Richmond, Virginia to quarantine, where I was quarantined until September 10th. During that time, I was like, cool, like the first half of like this pandemic, I I figured that the pandemic was going to last at least another like 18 months. Because once I realized that we weren't staying in quarantine and we weren't really like actively trying to squash this thing. I was like, nothing is going to change between now and the fall. Nothing's going to change between now and next summer. It's going to take 18 months for a vaccine to get developed. So let's just try to figure out, I've got 18 months now where I don't necessarily have to, you know, be beholden to being in one geographical location. School's going to go online, all that stuff. So I was trying to figure out what do I do? So naturally, I played Call of Duty Mobile for two weeks straight, like 12, 15 hours a day. Um, so, so yeah, I was super amped and I was just like, let's game. So once I got that out of my system, I was like, we've got 1,300 businesses. What do I do with these businesses? There's got to be something I can do to like 
try to maybe get my investors their money back because I'd used investor money to run that nonprofit. And it was like, they, they'd been very gracious to me. And so I started a company called Hands Free Software, uh, which was basically QR code menus with a built-in payment processor. So that way people could just sit down, scan a QR code menu, order what they wanted. The kitchen would bring it out. They could keep ordering food. They could split the bill and then they could just walk out. It increased turnover, table turnover times. It made restaurant operations a lot more efficient, reduced the need to like put waiters at risk. It sanitized the whole supply chain. It was great. My goal was to like offer this for free or for 10 bucks a month to restaurants. And then just like slowly encroach into toast and squares territory. And then finally just make a coalition led Uber Eats or DoorDash. And I was like, this was like June. We went live in July and I was getting ready to take over the world, but I was in quarantine. And so I couldn't do sales. And so I started trying to call people, email people, none of that worked. So I hired a bunch of my friends to go try to do sales. People that are generally good at socializing at parties and stuff also make pretty good salespeople. Oh, in this case, that didn't really work out. And so then I was like, okay, I have no ideas. I don't know what to do. I need to meet more people. And so I started getting active on Twitter again, like tech Twitter. This was like the middle of July, like I want to say like July, like 15th, probably. And then my friend Carson, who I built Party Talk with, hit me up and was like, yo, why don't we just make our own community? Like, and I was like, huh, that's hard. Takes a lot of work. It's not like partying at Clemson. There's different needs that need to happen here, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, no, like we can, we should make a community. So I was like, yo, go ahead and text Emma Salinas. You had her on last week. Tell her to tweet out that we're doing this and let's see what happens. Emma put out a really good tweet and she had a really large following on Twitter. And all of a sudden that tweet got like 400 people who responded. And so we made a Discord server um, and that was the start of Gen Z Mafia. That was on July 18th. So at this point, I'm still expecting, hey, I'm, I need to look for, I was actively looking for internships, not even jobs, right? Like I'd gotten my first job in tech when I was 17, 16 years old, the VC fund. And now I was looking for a $50,000, $60,000 a year investment banking job. Um, but then I realized very quickly that two days later, Monday morning rolled around and none of us had logged off Discord. Like this community was great. There were like 100 people in it and everybody loved it. We jokingly called it Gen Z Mafia after the PayPal Mafia. We were like, yeah, ideally, since it's the internet, we aren't bound by needing to be at Stanford or whatever. Like we can just meet the best people. Um, and then Bill Pulte, he's the Twitter philanthropy guy. He came on or he DM'd one of my friends, Jay-Z, and was like, hey, let me get an invite to the server. I thought Jay-Z was Photoshopping the screenshots or something. I was convinced he was trolling. But then Pulte joins. I happen to be the first person to send him a friend. So he messages me and goes, hey, I love what you're doing at Gen Z Mafia. I'm like, we aren't doing anything yet. What do you, what do you mean? He's like, let me know how I can help. And so immediately I was like, what do I want this to be? Like, ideally, if I can craft this into anything, what do I want to craft it into? And so I was like, yeah, let's like try to make this a way for people to break into tech. Like I was trying to break into tech. Um, and by virtue of this billionaire messaging me, all of a sudden I was able to act like, once again, like when I got to college, I faked it. When I started investing in stocks and writing about stocks and stuff, I was faking like I knew what I was doing. When I you know, got into VC, I was faking, I knew what I was doing. So same thing, like here I just faked like I had authority when in reality I had 300 followers on Twitter. Um, and so then I was like, yeah, dude, this is great. I'll get you some deal flow from the server. Me, Emma, Jay-Z, Carson, we're going to make this happen. Let's do a fireside chat. 
because I'd always grown up like asking people their stories. And I noticed that, yeah, I can't throw a party for these kids in Gen Z Mafia. But what I can do is I can like try to hold another type of event. I can try to build a community around a value proposition and keep engaging them by having them come back every single week for this thing. And so we did a fireside chat. Um, it was awful. Like from my moderation perspective, like I did not moderate well. So the next week we had Mike Solano from Founders Fund. And I prepared like for four days in advance. And then I get there, we had the best fireside chat ever. And that's really when Gen Z Mafia started taking off. The week before, I'd also wanted to build a product like Twitter, but for good vibes, just because I noticed a lot of my friends were like down on Snapchat. I was just like, look, people need a place to go hang out, be good vibes, whatever. Let's make one. So I put it in the Gen Z Mafia server, which by this point had like 200 people in it. And which is insane, by the way, for five days, right? Like we still weren't a full weekend. Hmm. Um, And so this was the fireside chat with Bill Ponte was on a Wednesday. Server was started on a Saturday. And then I decided to make vibes on the Thursday. So like the day after the fireside chat. And so we were already getting a good buzz on Twitter. Like we flooded all of Twitter with the letter Z as a joke. And like 300 people tweeted out the letter Z. And so everybody was like, what is this group? And I didn't even mean to do this, but I was like, let's make this and push it out. Nicholas Hubecker, Anish, Agnihotri, a few other people like all got together and we built this thing in six hours. And then we pushed it live. It was like number two on Product Hunt for a while. And then a bunch of people used it, like people like Jeff Morris Jr., who at the time I was like, whoa, JMJ from Tinder is using our fucking app. Like, holy shit. And then very quickly, people started deeming, hey, can I join Gen Z Mafia? Hey, can I do this? Can I do that? I was like, whoa, I've got something on my hands. So it sounds like it sounds like part of why Gen Z Mafia took off and made a splash was and also went on to launch products that at least uh, in the short term have made a splash is because it sounds like you all had a kind of shared understanding that everyone would hype things together, right? Let's say you all tweet out Z, uh, you all upvote the thing on Product Hunter or whatever. So is it a little bit of like a, it's a little bit of a hive mind that kind of amp boosts each other's projects and everyone throws their weight behind something to launch the group to no, accelerate I mean, the, the not a hive mind or anything like that. I would say that, um, no, the reason that we came together initially is because it was a community of builders. It was people who just really genuinely like to build. Right. Like now, especially in the summer, nobody has school or anything like that. So we were building products every day and launching them. And so the hyping just that just came from a if we built something, we naturally want to have it be successful. So let's try to get our friends involved. Let's try. That's to- what I'm what I'm trying to zero in on, because I'm interested in the the game theory here, like how to get communities like super motivated and helping each other and accelerating each other. What's that? I've got it down to, I think I've got it down to a science, right? Uh, If you remember a little bit earlier, I talked about, I started pushing a lot of content on Snapchat with when I was partying because I realized people wanted that little extra boom. What I realized was it's the same thing with Gen Z Mafia, right? Like tech Twitter, I technically been on tech Twitter for five years from the time I was 15. I had no followers, no voice, nothing. My following doubled almost within a week of me starting Gen Z Mafia. And so I realized, wait a second, now like the SEO algorithm, SEO gods love me and people are actually paying attention to what I tweet. Let's start tweeting. And so I started tweeting nonstop. Everybody goes, what's the key to your success to answer the question you asked at the 19 minute mark, um, which was how did you get into this? Like how can other people do this? Mm. I, I truly believe like Twitter, I've said this for years, but now it's actually true in my life as well. 10 weeks ago, 
I was Siddharshan Sridharan, a 20-year-old kid who was supposed to be a junior in Clemson University. Now I live in San Francisco, in the heart of San Francisco, in Polk Gulch, and I live with five other founders and my company's working, right? All of that is one, because I have a kick-ass team. I've got, like, we've got a great product. We are really good at, I'm really good at marketing, hyping, all that stuff. But it's also because Twitter was the medium it all happened on. It's insanely easy to FOMO people. It's insanely easy to get distributions, insanely easy to um, get a brand and build it if you're very just like abrasive in your face, always pushing content. But what's interesting about your story is that you did not, you know, put in a lot of work on Twitter to grow a network and then launch a product, which is the story you often hear from people. Your Yours is unique in that you actually started the community as the first thing and then that accelerated your like Twitter mm-hmm. network. But I think um, one thing I always say is I always like to be the dumbest person in the room, especially when I'm working. I always delegate my jobs to everybody. Even something as simple as throw up a landing page, I could do it. I did it with SaveMaps, but I know my CTO can do it 10 times faster and make it look way better. So same thing with community building, right? To get that initial, what is the target demographic? Carson had the idea. And then I just knew, okay, Emma's the only person we know in our circle that has any sort of following on Twitter. So she needs to tweet it out. And so it was literally just Emma did her part. Carson did her part. And so Carson did his part. And as a result, like everything got that initial kick kickstart. Once that happens, then you get a network effect very fast if people feel like there's value to be had. And so that's why Twitter was the value. Like they see all the FOMO and the hype, not because they're in the Discord server, but because they see this random kid who's a nobody just tweeting about it all the time. They see other people engaging with this content. They go, wait, what is this? I want to check it out. And then they realize, wait, we can't even join it. How do we join it? So it like builds itself. And so my formula for community building, in my opinion, is um, it's three steps, basically. One, find a common demographic, right? Whether it's age or a community or an ideology or whatever it is, people have to come around something common. And then... Um, initially you don't even need a value add. It's just, they're coming together around something that they enjoy or they like, or they're passionate about. And then the second thing is you want to engage them. You want there to be a reason or some sort of center point for them to come through every single week or every single day or every single month. And so in the case of partying, party promoting at Clemson, it was all about, okay, there's going to be a party initially every Friday or every Saturday. And then there's going to be two days, three days, five days, every day of the week, right? Like that in uh, Gen Z Mafia, it was a fireside chat. First started once a week, then twice a week. Then we did a hackathon, which also our hackathons caused some problems because people felt feel that hackathons are sexist and racist and divisive in general and biased. And I had no idea because I'm an outsider in tech. And so that was my first controversy ever on, in my life that I faced on the internet. And like I grew up always in this scenario where like I had no friends. So I was like, I just assumed that I knew at some point as I kept tweeting and being more and more just like in your face and provocative, people were going to start having problems. I didn't know that a hackathon would be that initial impetus. And right. so we did that. I, I, I was like, I want to throw a hackathon. I want to continue to engage our people. And so I tweeted out, I'm like, hey, who wants to sponsor? Within like four hours, we had $5,000 in sponsors. We had a whole great team of people coming together to build a whole hackathon, make it work out, all that stuff. But then we had a whole group of people going, oh, look at these these people with privilege, these men, these whatever. I'm like, wait, hold up. I'm from South Carolina. Being Indian in South Carolina 
that's a problem, right? That's not like, it's not an easy life by any means. I, sure, maybe if I grew up in the Bay Area, it's different, but no, I, I totally refuse your narrative here that I'm like some guy with privilege. And we're also, our founding team is two Asians, a Latino first generation American woman and Carson, right? That's, what do you mean? Like this whole thing is as diverse as you get. Um, and so that's really where I started my like bumping heads with people right on tech Twitter and stuff. And I never, ever intended to be like a controversial figure. I didn't know that it would be good. I didn't know that I just wanted to be Siddharthan. I just wanted to be liked by everybody. Going back to that, do you want to be the world's leader or the world's friend? Up until this point, I was like, I want to just be everybody's friend. But this is really where I realized it's like heavy is the head that holds a crown. If you want to like actually be the face of something, if you want to lead something, if you want to like actually add value and create value, you're going to have people that take the other side the status quo that gets disrupted or something like that where people are always going to have problems. So you just got to accept it. And that's really where like I started going down this, you know what? I'm okay with controversy. Like I welcome it. Our hackathon, by the way, ended up being the most diverse thing that anybody on Twitter has ever done. 57 out of the 112 people who signed up were women. We had six female judges and three underrepresented minorities, male judges. And so it was like, we did what we had to do to make sure that we clearly sent a message that we were inclusive and diverse and all that stuff. But, so, um, I think you had said that there are three steps to building a community. Did you right. say the third? Yeah. So the first step is common demographics. Second step is engage people. Third step is you have to add value, right? Whether the value comes from the community itself. If somebody in the chat says, now we have 2000 people. We just hit 2000 people today on the server. If somebody says, Hey, I need help with this. We have 20 people that will respond immediately and go, hey, yeah, what do you need help with? I've done this before. Someone says, hey, I'm hiring. We have a whole hiring chat and we've gotten over 100 people like hired or contract work from that chat. Someone's fundraising. We have, I think, three companies worth over 100 million in that chat. There's a lot of founder experience and a lot of kids who just a few months prior were worth nothing or were working somewhere else or everybody comes from different backgrounds. And so it's like, we have this diversity of thought, this like wide range of people that whether you want to talk about memes or fundraising or psych psychedelics, like people are there to add that value and stimulate you and help you in any way you need. And Sorry. so well, like the three steps are common demographic engagement and value. And that's it's great. Really that's interesting. So I was talking with Emma about this a couple of weeks ago about the problem of what happens if or when the community just fills up with freeloaders or non-constructive people or whatever, a common problem in a lot of communities, especially when they're free. And to my understanding, Gen Z Mafia is free and there's a little bit of an entrance process, but my understanding is you generally don't turn people away. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you think about that problem and how you're thinking about it for Gen Z Mafia? Yeah. So I initially was like, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, right? Um, and then I realized, wait, I don't need to go talk to the guys who started Hacker News. I don't need to go talk to this or that. I have the answer in my own past, right? Like when I ran my esports organization that grew to over 20,000 people when I was 16, the summer I turned 16, that fell apart because I couldn't manage, manage it at the top. Too many people wanted power or influence or name recognition. Too many people wanted to make money and this and that. And But then compared to the parties where there was a mutual exchange of value, there were some people making money. There were people engaging in party activities. There were people who just got to go have that experience, whatever it is. And so I realized very quickly, 
everybody has to be getting something out of this, right? Like relationships, I think, especially in the Valley, when it comes to tech, very quickly become fundamentally transactional. And so my thing was, every time you enter the chat, how can you get some value out of it? And one of those things is people are just, even if they're not like locked in quarantine, they're still just looking for that knowledge. And so there are going to be a lot of freeloaders, but I think it goes back to the theory of reciprocity, where it's if as a community, we can create X amount of value, there are always going to be people that keep coming back and that keep wanting to help until they make it. And then they will refer a new set of people that look up to them. And then it's a cycle that keeps building. The key isn't retention or like the key isn't to minimize churn. It's to maximize the number of people coming in and that are getting value from them, from the interactions on the server. And so that's how I look at it too. Like for me, a lot of my thing has, I've stopped really working on the day-to-day of Gen Z Mafia. I've been very focused on Fion full-time. Um, but I've noticed that it just keeps chugging along and it keeps growing. The New York Times profiled us recently. That was a huge bump that really helped. Basically, I think everybody in tech at this point has some understanding or has heard of the name Gen Z Mafia. And so it's just now it's how do we continue to make sure that flywheel doesn't stop? So freeloaders are good because at some point, either they want to add value or we're adding them value. And as a result, that builds loyalty and they're going to go talk about it. And then somebody else shows up and another person. We, we've done stuff like more members that we trust a little bit more explicitly or have noticed that are active in the community get added to cool kids, which is a whole, unlocks a whole new set of chats. And then the final level is for people who actually who build, they get added to the ministry of building. And like our idea initially was we we're going to be a product studio. Now we just want to make sure that we're connecting everybody who comes through with the right resources, whether that's sales, whether that's like actual talent to hire, whether that's funding or if they just need experience and they need to understand, hey, how can I start a company too? And so, so do, you think, do you think that sooner or later, one of you is going to build Gen Z Mafia as a business? Or do you think it's going to stay as this just free collaborative thing that is a source of other forms of value? Look, there are a lot of brilliant people in the chat. Um, I personally just making money off a community like that. Like I, I just don't know if I'm like the best. Like I did it with partying. I just don't know if I would be able to do that personally, just because that requires a lot of time, which I don't have because of Fion. That requires a lot of like relationship balancing and this and that. And you have to be a lot more focused on, we talked about that flywheel earlier. You have to be a lot more focused on getting those network effects set in stone and driving programming and all that stuff. So for me, it's not a right fit, but there are so many people in that chat, even starting like Emma and Jay-Z and stuff who are brilliant and totally could make this a business that once again is tra- like involves value being added to everybody involved. So yeah, I can totally see it happening. Honestly, like I used to think about doing that before Fion and yeah, I just think that yeah, it sh- it should happen. I I don't know who's doing it. Yeah, because you're almost doing like a kind of incubator or an accelerator mm-hmm. or something like that or a product studio. You could think about it in different directions. Do you know uh, Eric Torenberg by any chance? Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've never talked to him, but I, I know Eric. Yeah. You should talk to him. I, I, I know him. I, I maybe shouldn't say very well, but I've talked with him a few times now and he's definitely thinking very hard about this kind of thing. Obviously mm-hmm. on deck is doing something similar in, they definitely are making a big wager that uh, community is going to be one of the big drivers of all kinds of different career prospects and kind of economic outcomes for people. 
And uh, yeah, so there's definitely a lot of alignment, I think, between what Gen Z is essentially doing in a kind of underground digital native sort of way for Gen Z folks, what the Gen Z mafia is doing for Gen Z folks, and what Eric and the people over at OnDeck are doing for perhaps somewhat older people. I'm sure they have some Gen Z people for sure also as well. I know Emma had some overlap with them, but uh, yeah, I I get the sense that Gen Z mafia is like an informal, spontaneous version of exactly what kind of on deck is making its its own wagers on and uh, yeah so i was just curious if you knew him so uh okay cool that was awesome that was like uh, a lot of interesting stuff there in your story one one thing i took from your personal life story that you just gave us very generously is that it's like you it was interesting that you started off in your life like very awkward it sounded and you didn't have a lot of friends and you described it as socially ostracized and the pattern i see is that you it sounds like from when you were like 11 to when you went to university, you exploited your social awkwardness by just basically developing hobbies and doing pattern matching and figuring out how stock markets work and uh, basically just pursuing your personal ideas and building things and just getting your feet wet, trying to do things like writing on Quora or trading stocks or whatever. And so it sounds like you've used your social awkwardness as an advantage to just focus on the stuff you were personally interested in, learn how to do it and get good at it. And then it was really interesting how you said that when you went to university, you just flipped the switch. Because I, I bet you a lot of people listening to this, especially if they identify with the the earlier awkward version of you, they probably thought to themselves like, oh, how the hell do you just flip the switch? How do you go from being like an awkward, uh, socially ostracized person to just all of a sudden deciding to be something else? I, I suspect a lot of people listening were very curious about that. I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot. There's a few directions I could go in this. I think one of the key things that, like I said earlier, is pattern matching. It's, you have to just, it, it's time, right? Like in my native language, Tamil, there's a um, saying, which means like a good cow only needs to get burnt once. I've been burnt 500,000 times by 500,000 different. Like I've made every mistake in the book Slowly over time, I learned to internalize other people's mistakes. So I didn't make them. But the first step was just literally being embarrassed and fucking up at every single turn imaginable. And then after that, it was trying to understand what do the people that are shitting on me or what do the people that I view as successful or the people I like, the people who still treat me as a human being with respect instead of just laughing at me. Every time I enter a room or I open my mouth or anything like that, what do they do? What are the different traits all these people have? And so the first thing I did was just profile people. And very quickly, a few characteristics across each different type of person emerges. And you can pick up on that from their their like verbal cues. You can pick up on these things from how they act, how they type, how they their online personality, all that stuff. And from there, then you just over time, develop a mental thing of, I did X with this type of person that I profiled and it didn't work out. So maybe I should try Y. All right, I tried Y and Y worked out. Let's try it again with this other person. And then the basic things like, if you want to hang out with someone or you think somebody's cool, for me, I still I still don't know how to do it except be like, Justin, I think you're fucking dope and I think we should hang out again, dude. I think we should get some, like, hang out sometime. We should go to a bar. We should, whatever. Like, I still to this day don't know how to do this without just being super direct. Um, But one thing I just recently realized, we drove down to LA with a couple of my housemates and one of them is, he, actually, I'm not going to describe him at all, but he basically, it was so easy to 
in that five hours I was in the car with them, I was like, wait a second, this kid and me are the same. We come from the same background. So I was like, hey, did you grow up with no friends and a complete loser and hate your life for a long time? He was like, yes. I'm like, wait a second. And that's when things started clicking for me. Nobody wrote the book on, hey, if you're socially awkward, do X, Y, or Z. But what there is over time, people, especially like who, at least I'll, I said, I have no problem being a pompous douchebag. In this case, I think I'm like very smart and talented, just not technical. So for me, it's, you can tell people who are generally like smarter or like just want to do more with their life. If they grew up socially awkward, they aren't anymore because they spent a lot of time studying people, studying the tells, the traits, the characteristics and going, okay, quite literally, it's a scientific process of going, I fucked up this entire relationship, burnt this entire bridge here because I did X, let's try Y. And you do that over and over again. So for me, what I did was I never watched TV growing up or anything. So I started watching shows like people um, that I thought were like more representative of the real world. Now I understand that House of Cards and Billions is <laughs> not the real world in any way. But at that point in time, I was like, whoa, is this how the real world is turned into this? And so like whatever in my mind was like, a ethical, not evil Frank Underwood slash Bobby Axelrod was like what I was trying to embody, like this cool, calm, collected person that was looking 10 steps ahead. When in reality, I'm 6'6". Six, six. There was almost no way to fuck up in college and not have a social life if you're 6'6". Six, six. Just because there's always going to be some like girl or somebody who's coming after you. And as a result, like there are going to be guys who come too, right? There are going to be people who want to like hang out. And as a result, like you just got to not be weird. And so what I've noticed, what I initially started off was like saying very little, just being in social situations and just letting people talk at me. And I'd engage in something I noticed with a lot of people who are socially awkward. They'll always say, I hear you. I recognize you said this, or they'll make you feel heard, or they'll at least recognize that they heard you. And then they will go do whatever, say whatever the hell they're going to say, totally ignore what you do. But that is, that's like a good thing because you, it's not a good thing, but you want to tell people, Hey, I heard you. And so that's one of those biggest things. Like if you just shut up and let people feel like they're being heard, if you ask people, how can I help you? If you like the same things that make a good VC, make a good cookie cutter person with generic social skill, which is, hi, who are you? Tell me about yourself. What do you do? Just let them talk at you the whole time. You just want them to talk because then they feel heard. And then you come up with one good input or you say, oh, why don't you try this instead? Or wow, that is so interesting. Yeah. Also, it's, there's less opportunity to embarrass yourself. Like Mm -hmm. I I tend to be more of an extroverted person. I have tons of ideas all the time. I love talking and uh, there are benefits to being extroverted, but one of the drawbacks is I'm always saying shit. So uh, some portion of that is going to be stupid shit, especially when you're young. I think like young people trying to kind of network and make friends and find their way in the world as they're coming of age. I think uh, it is a common pitfall to basically talk too much or try to be impressive or try to constantly be sharing ideas or impressing people. And so I think you're right that actually if you're, if you feel like you're unsure or you're, you don't have a lot of like great ideas or you're just awkward or you lack confidence or you struggle to participate in different types of social networking and social activities, just being super quiet and listening is a relatively easy thing because even if you're bored, like even if you're like daydreaming, you can just be polite and it's not that hard to mess it up. That's pretty low risk. And you're right that because so many people are always trying to talk about themselves that if you can just simply keep your mouth shut, you come off as like mature and receptive and 
in a weird way, you come off also as confident too, because it's like what they say about mm -hmm. speak softly and carry a big stick. So I think it's good advice for, especially if you're awkward. And that's the thing. It's you only master these rules so you can break them. If you, unless you want to, unless you're just happy being like a generic person or just you're happy to be around people, which for years and years, that was me. I was just happy that I was in a situation where people weren't like, get the fuck out, please leave. Whatever it is. But slowly over time, like I just went, okay, can I, do I have the social capital? Have I helped enough people? Have I created enough value that I can just say something, even if it's super stupid, people will still be like, ah, ha, 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 yeah, we love subs. And so then I just started intentionally saying dumbass shit just to see if I could get away with it. And I did. And then I kept getting away with it. And I kept, and I was like, oh my God, I've done it. Like I have done it. Like people want to be around me. I have done something here. <laughs> and so I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what exactly were those stuff. I live with this guy now. I'm just going to keep picking his brain going, what did you do? What did you, until like I figure it out. But um, I think a lot of it is just, it's better to just be in the presence of people, especially when you grow up socially awkward and just be able to take all that in and just feel like, yay, I'm normal. Then it is to try to like always talk and be heard, but then you have no friends. I think right. like being around people normalizes you for sure. And yeah. I use social media very heavily. Always, I believe once I decided what are your characteristics that make a good leader, when I was still in that, do I want to be the world's friend or world's leader phase? I was like, they elevate people. Good leaders aren't looking to keep the best talent and just take all the credit. They're looking to have a mafia, right? Like their Facebook has a bajillion unicorns that have spun out of it, like from their employees, stuff like that. And so as a result, why is that? Why does that create the most value? And it's because it continues to attract people, right? Like we talked about, you're not looking to, you know, minimize churn in any way. You're just looking to maximize the number of people coming to the networking value. Same thing with company building, same thing with people and relationship building. You want to elevate people. So on my Twitter, same as my Snapchat when I was partying, I'd always be tagging people. I'd always be elevating people. So for better or worse, that ties them to you. They go, whoa. I am associated with this guy now. And if they act poorly, that's not really an indictment on you. But if they act, it's, oh, cool. Siddharthan knew this person before they blew up. Or Siddharthan is friends with this person. That's cool. What makes him cool? And that's not something I need to do anymore. But now I've noticed people being associated with me makes them cool. And for someone who grew up like me, and I'm assuming maybe grew up like you, like that's just, holy shit. Like we are now the ones giving people credibility. And so I think the, especially people listening to you, they're, like you said, they're autodidacts. Like they're definitely a lot more um, builder focused, like tech focused or research, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing you can do is just go heads down and build, right? If I didn't build Party Talk, if I didn't build Save Maps, the nonprofit, if I wasn't just building my whole life from the time I was nine to 18, I wouldn't have that opportunity to just know what to do, to tweet out a bunch of stuff for 10 weeks and end up in San Francisco to start a company and incur, have people draw so drawn to my vision that they quit their jobs to come work on this for free. Right? Yeah. So hell like, yeah. That is so true. It's also with intellectual work. It's the same. It's if you want to make an impact in the world of ideas, you want to, you know, write a blog that people actually read and are impressed by, and that actually changes their mind, that kind of thing. The number one thing to do is just put your head down and get to work, read a ton about something and then write a ton about something and uh, really go all in on trying to just master things. And because that's exactly the hardest part of any of this. And it's exactly what 
most people don't want to do or struggle to actually follow through on. And so it's, if you can just do that, it, it really is the engine of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's truly. And this is, I'm not going to say who, but I was getting some press that was unfavorable. And this guy who runs this very popular company that's being crucified right now, all over Twitter and the media, he called me up and he's like, Hey, you're, a, I'm like, I, I don't even know this guy. I have no idea how he knew what was going on, anything about it. He was like, hey, you're a builder. Just keep building and no one's going to, everything's going to blow over. He's like, you're not an asshole. I'm like, uh, no, I think I am net positive. I don't flame people. I think I'm a good person, like not really a troll. He's like, good. In this case, all you need to do is just keep building. And you're gonna totally. Build. It's so true. It's so true. And I think that's a, that's a great place to maybe start wrapping this up. I don't want to keep you too long. I know we only booked oh. about an hour or so. So I think that was awesome. I think th there's a lot of food for thought there. I think people are going to be super interested in your story and uh, you, you shared some interesting perspectives. So that was pretty awesome. I think the only last thing I really wanted to talk about was I'd be remiss not to mention that uh, Sampar ate his words, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Sampar did. He came on a, he, so for those of you that don't know, Sampar was like, went on his podcast, My First Millions, and said that the article he read about Gen Z Mafia wasn't exactly favorable to who didn't leave a good impression. No, he so, called you guys uh, fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. But then naturally, I, like, I, like I said, I've had the Twitter mob sicked on me a lot. So the Gen Z Mafia mob was getting ready and I was like, stop it, stop it. We're not doing this right now. And so instead, I just invited him onto the podcast. That's why I've noticed like any someone shits on us, if they're... Pro high profile enough to actually like for us to see that tweet, then we probably want them to come to a fireside. And so I invited him to a fireside chat. He was like, sure. Then he messaged me on Twitter DMs and was like, hey, what is Fion? Is it good? So I sent him my Fion Notion memo, the investment memo that I prepared for people who were interested, but we don't want to take money from yet. So we, I just kept sending this around to drum up some FOMO and some hype. Um, he read that. He didn't respond. And so I thought, great, like this guy's a dick. He didn't even say it sucked. And then I get a call from a guy who's a staffer at the White House, like a few days later. And I'm like, he's like, hey, this is Sidarshan, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wait, how'd you hear about us? Like, why do you want to help find? He's like, no, like I heard about you on My First Millions. The podcast episode is releasing tomorrow, but like I, I listened to it. I, I get the advanced copy beforehand and they mentioned Phylon positively. So I, I wanted to, I checked you guys out. It seems like you guys are doing great work and we want to try to like partner with the U.S. government. I'm like, holy shit, wait, what? And so then, like, like, I still haven't heard it, but he mentioned Fion for like 30 seconds and I got like, 50 new followers and like a bunch of people who were like asking about Fion and all this stuff. I'm like, oh, whoa. And so then we had him on for a fireside chat last Thursday, right after I released the consumer tool or like the early bird sign up. And he's like, you're a fucking dumbass. Double the price, make it recurring, monthly recurring. And start generating way more revenue. I was like, hey, my team has some, they don't want to put out something that's not perfect yet. They want to make sure, like, I was just like, we don't want to launch it. He was like, no, revenue matters. You do a good job of selling. So you need to not listen to your team and you need to sell if your tech is ready. And our tech is ready. So I was like, you're right. And so all of a sudden, like, I start running the numbers and I figure out, okay, $40 a year is a good price point. People would pay this. And I start looking at, like, how many customers we need. We only need 200 customers, 250 customers for 10 grand in revenue. We only need 2,500 for a hundred grand. And so I'm like, there are 400 million people that are currently on fire right now. Like have, there's a lot of people that we could really help with this. We could even give the tech out for free to people who can't afford it. And we can still make a killing. 
and then use that to finance our work and like R&D and stuff without really needing to take more VC money. And so, yeah, did he eat his words? Yes. But he also came on and gave me like an hour long lecture in front of like 30 people. Oh, awesome. No, he's awesome. I, I love that dude. I think he's, I, I really like his style and how he thinks and what he's built. Uh, so nothing but respect for that guy. But uh, no, I just thought it was funny because uh, I take a very small amount of credit for uh, forcing him to uh, change his mind. Because if you remember, I think you because you guys didn't want to touch it online, like you weren't uh, clapping back online. And I think I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I was the first person to call him out and say to take issue with him and disagree with him on Twitter. And then I got Emma on the podcast and we talked about it a little bit. So I, I, I take a wee bit of credit for uh, changing his mind. <laughs> Justin, you get all the credit. If we <laughs> nice. didn't post that, we wouldn't have Sam Parr. I wouldn't have my very lucrative looking consumer tool right now. So that's all awesome, dude. That's so cool. That's 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 a wonderful way to end the podcast. Yeah, no, that's like one, one of the things that I'm all about. And that's one of the things I'm trying to rep is like uh, there's uh, so many really smart, creative, genius people coming up from weird different corners and weird pockets of the world in weird ways and not following traditional playbooks and in the first instance in the early stages of creative intellectual or startup projects whatever the case might be in the early stages it's just so easy for genuinely creative geniuses to look from the outside to look to external observers especially elite institutional observers or just very successful people a little bit older it's so easy for these like new weird creative geniuses to look like they're dumb or stupid or uh, they have no hope or whatever. And uh, yeah, I, I guess like for me personally, I just, I've always felt a little bit more like a weirdo outsider and I, that stuff resonates with me a little bit more. And I like looking at the weirdest stuff that to a lot of people looks maybe dumb or not ready yet or stupid or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, it's funny and cool recently to meet you folks and become friendly with some of you uh, younger folks because uh, yeah, it's just very, it's very much aligned with the weird little niche that I guess I represent, which is like halfway between kind of formal academic institutions and uh, a little bit of kind of tech startup world. And then just like internet culture more broadly. Yes, yeah, it's, it's cool to be, it's cool to find like my work and my podcast and stuff like that, starting to, yeah, make little waves in these other worlds that I never really necessarily set out to have an impact in but i'm starting to understand how that's working and why that's working and i'm excited by that i think that's really fun and cool i'm proud of that yeah no, i really appreciate it enough about me though so uh that was awesome man thanks for sharing your story and for telling us all about your projects and uh, yeah for people that are interested in learning more about fion or learning more about you personally i'll put all all the links to your stuff in the show notes so people should definitely go and check that out was there anything else on your end, uh, Sudarshan, that maybe we didn't cover or you wanted to squeeze in before we wrap it up? Yeah, I didn't talk about how I started Fion in like 30 seconds or less. Basically, I just tweeted a lot about firefighting drones. And <laughs> by this point, like I'd gone from 300 followers to like 5,000 or like 4,000, whatever. And so my team just messaged me and I knew these guys for years. And so I was like, okay, you guys have this proprietary AI model that nobody else in the world has. This sounds super buzzwordy. I don't believe it. And then they showed me and I was like, whoa, we need to make this a business. And so that's how Fion came about. It's literally just the team has a knowledge mode. I get super obsessed about stuff when I get into it and they noticed and they thought I'd be a good fit and turns out we are a good fit. And so that's how Fion started just on Twitter at the end of July. 
Oh, so your tweeting is what uh, made you connect with the people who had the models? Yeah, yeah. So they, okay. yeah, that's, that's, I've that's, known them for years, but neither of us knew the other was interested in fires. Interesting. Okay, cool. No, that is a nice little wrinkle that uh, fills out the story. So thanks for that. All right, man. It was a pleasure getting to know you better, man. Really nice talking with you. Super interesting stuff. And uh, thanks again for coming on and uh, definitely stay in touch. Of course. Thank you. All right. Take it easy, man. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, you should send it to a friend. Just email it to them or post it on your social networks, whatever. And to learn more about what we discussed in this podcast or to send me questions to address in future episodes, please just go to otherlife.co and you'll find everything there. There's actually a ton of cool stuff on there. So check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, folks. I'll see you here next time.